Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. Super excited today, um, not only because we have two great sponsors of Lead 411 and Gong, so please check out our sponsors, we appreciate them, uh, but we also have the Chief Customer Officer, Megan Bowen of Refine Labs, and she is joining us. I don't know, where are you dialing in from, Megan, and, and thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Uh, I'm in New York City in Queens uh, from, in my basement. <laughs> I've been there. Scott and I, when we first started doing this, people would laugh like, why are you in the garage? And now everybody's in the freaking garage. So, um, so just sort of give folks a little bit of your journey. And what we're trying to do is give people perspective of where your mindset's coming from. So, you know, from a sales perspective or even a customer success perspective, what are your sales cycles like? What are the deal sizes like? And you can talk about Refine Labs or previous places so we can get a sense of progression. Absolutely. Um, I spent the last 15 years at five different B2B startups in New York City. So I've um, been at ed tech companies, health tech, um, real estate tech, food tech, um, and all B2B primarily focused on account management, customer success, and sales is the bulk of my experience. Um, at one of my last companies managed by Q, I was COO and overseeing all go-to-market teams which was a transformational experience to really be able to appreciate and understand the interplay between marketing, sales, success, operations, and how all of those puzzle pieces fit together. Um, currently at Refine Labs, um, you know, we're a revenue marketing agency um, working with B2B companies to help them with their demand generation. Um, so with respect to my experience, I've experienced a lot of different types of sales processes, sales cycles. Um, I've seen a lot of different things across all those different companies. So excited to see where the conversation takes us and, and share from all of those different uh, parts of my experience. Yeah, talk, can you talk a little bit about the intersectionality of all the departments, I guess, if you will, that you just mentioned, the ops, sales, marketing, customer success. Um, what's the hardest part about integrating all those under you, under one person, under just Megan? What's, what was the hardest transition? Yeah, it's a great question. One learning for me as I navigated that transition, when I first joined the company in question managed by Q, I was only running account management. I was very tunnel focused on, I'm gonna make account management the best function at the company. And in hindsight, I actually made different decisions, whether it was related to the comp plan or our process that maybe was in direct conflict to what marketing was trying to do, sales was, what sales was trying to do, what operations was trying to do. There were a lot of um, seasoned executive leaders of all of those functions that were really good at optimizing their function, but not very good at cross-functional collaboration um, and making sure that all the pieces were fitting together. So I think a huge learning for me when I finally uh, oversaw all of those functions and was able to look at everything from the 30,000 foot view, I was like, oh my gosh, like I was doing things that was causing conflict and tension and issues. And I didn't even realize it. I thought I was doing a good job building my account management team. Mm -hmm. Can you real quick, can you name one or two things that you were doing unintentionally that added conflict or, or tension? So we, I think one of the things is we were thinking around how we were going to design the compensation plan. The account management team at the, at the company did have a, a quota for retention and growth of the customer base. It was a land and expand model, so it was important um, 
at the time, we all thought it was important to incentivize that behavior. And so we, you know, the comp plan was basically you retain your customers, get them to buy additional services, and you will be paid against how successful you are there. And then on the sales side, the comp plan was optimized to get them to buy as many things as they could within the first 30 days. And so we created the situation for a customer where they had a salesperson that was getting them onboarded with a core service and pushing, pushing, pushing upsell. And then as soon as AM got them, they just kind of kept it going and it just devolved to the customer experience and neither team was doing anything wrong, right? Like they were behaving in the way that the incentive plan <laughs> set them yeah. up to behave. Um, and I was hitting my goal. <laughs> so, you know, I was hitting the numbers, the team was getting their commission, this and that. But then when I was able to take a step back, I was like, oh, this is not a good customer experience. And this, there's a better way to do this where we can still achieve our goals. The other thing is it created infighting between sales and account management on yeah. various upsell opportunities that would happen at the time of handoff. And well, yeah, there's, you know, that's a classic problem, tension between sales and account management, sales and customer success. Um, but I was actively contributing to that instead of actively fixing it. We later then did a lot of good work to fix it once I kind of had my aha moment, but well, that's an example. What was the conflict exactly though? Like when you say, hey, within that first 30 days, you know, which I, it sounds like where you're saying that happens, like what was sales saying back? And the reason I'm asking is, I want to give people the, hey, if you're hearing this, these are kind of the red flags that are you need to work towards solving. So sales would want to ensure that the customer purchased a particular add-on service within a very short window of time because they only received credit if it happened uh, within the first 30 days of the original core service starting. So there was um, misplaced urgency um, on the sales side to pressure the customer into buying. Then on the account management side, they felt like the customer doesn't need this now. They probably need this three months in. And this is my upsell opportunity that you're trying to capture earlier in the cycle. Um, and in that particular example, I, you know, you could argue the account management side was correct in that they were being a little bit more customer centric. But that's an example of trying to push deals through to get credit for a comp plan that might not be aligned with what the customer wants and creating a situation where you have internal teams fighting over upsell opportunities for a customer. I have, I have a question for you around expansion quotas and a very specific question. How do you set expansion quotas? In particular, when you're like in an earlier stage organization and you have no benchmark or barometer for what's possible. This is a selfish ask on my part, Richard, because I have a client who just asked me this exact question and I'm just going to wait for Megan to answer brilliantly and then I'm going to steal her answer and use it. There is no silver bullet. So I made the mistake of taking on a team, having three months of customer data on additional services that they purchased post the initial one. And we just used a spreadsheet to extrapolate like the best case scenario of how that would continue to play out, right? Disaster. It Reality did not um, match our best case scenario, Excel planning, <laughs> you know, uh, process that we went through. And a huge learning for me is if you don't have enough information, enough historical information to set goals that you believe are realistic, 
then you should not make them up or back into them from a revenue number you want to hit in the future because you want to hit that revenue number or it justifies your valuation or whatever it is. So how do you fight that battle? How do you fight that battle from the CEO or the board? Right. Yeah. Scott's next question. That flies against like everything people above us try to force us to do. I'm not disagreeing with her. I'm just saying, you know, the board and the CEOs are are like, they're definitely pushing back on that. Like Richard said. So, you know, and to be honest, I, I kept trying to optimize my forecasting approach so that I could try and set goals that I thought I could hit um, and did not do a very good job of doing that. And because I went through that very painful process and had to go in front of the board and tell them I didn't hit my goal and had to explain that this was how we calculated the goal and the amount of guesswork that was involved and the reality of what we were up against. I just, when I had my moment in front of them, I I was very honest about the situation, which they happened to appreciate. What I've learned and what I've taken with me going forward is when you're in that situation, um, be upfront at the beginning and make everybody acknowledge like we can we can make up a goal that's fine but we should agree and acknowledge that we just made this up and if we can't ground it in historical data or logic that makes sense and if we want to tie individual team members compensation performance to these goals and things don't work out this is going to create more problems for us than it will solve so what my recommendation is Let's set some milestones and goals of what we want to achieve, but let's play this out and let's see what happens over the course of six months. Let's focus on driving the right activities that we believe will drive the outcomes that we want. Let's be smart about either having no compensation plan or uh, something something that the individual can control to an extent um, for a short period of time for six months, for nine months. And then once we have enough information, we can go through that process again, but it can deteriorate your team's culture so much and completely backfire. So that's what I try to advocate for, but it's difficult. Scott, imagine that you're given six months to prove the revenue number. Cause like in sales, it's like six weeks, right? Like, it's like, what do you mean this didn't work? But you agreed to this number on a piece of paper. Like, this is what we get. Like, this is the bullshit we get. And account managers are given this time and, you know, nothing against you. Like, that's the way the world worked. But, you know, it is hilarious. You probably crafted a better argument than we're capable of, Richard, as well. That's probably true, too. That's probably true. So, um, so what are in those instances, right? Like, what are some examples you could give of, okay, if we're all going to acknowledge this and we're willing to at least get on board, here are the things I think we should compensate people on specifically. So the people who are listening can come back and and tell us. So um, I think for customer success, I've actually come to the conclusion that I hate variable compensation or commission plans for account management or customer success. Wow. Tell us more about that. So the best account managers and CSMs that I've ever worked with, regardless of whatever comp plan I had in place at any particular time, they would tell me to my face that I am just going to do what I believe is right. 
and I'm going to continue to build my relationship with my customer. I'm going to help them solve problems. I'm going to help them deliver the results that they believe they would get from using our product. And if I hit my goal that you set for me and I get my commission, great. But I, I'm not thinking about how my day-to-day -day activities are mapping back to this commission plan. And I'm not going to worry about it because I know, I know the right thing to do. And those CSMs and AMs, they actually had a lot of different approaches. They did things differently. They all did things differently from one another. They all also hit their goals and, and earned what their What were they doing differently though? Like this is that, I always dig in on these, these yeah. buzzwords. What kind of things did you see them doing differently? So, you know, I, I actually am a huge fan of playbooks and documentation and having a really clear process and strategy for how your account management team or customer success team is gonna engage with the customer over the course of the relationship. What I found though is if I made them too prescriptive, it created a team of robots. And my best AMs and CSMs, they would, they would embrace the fundamentals of the strategy and the approach, but they would apply their personal style to it. So for example, let's say we have, you know, here is the onboarding process. Um, you have to have a call with the salesperson to hand off the relationship. Then you have your in-person onboarding meeting. This is what the follow-up looks like. Here are the agenda topics that you need to cover, um, so on and so forth. Um, my best AMs would then take that onboarding process and they would mold it to fit each customer in the way that made sense. So sometimes the handoff from sales was an in-person meeting. Sometimes it was a phone call. Um, sometimes based on the relationship, they were involved in the late stage sales cycle and it could be handled over email because the customer already knew them. Um, onboarding meetings, um, they might say, you know what, I'm going to focus on these things and I'm going to tackle these in a follow-up meeting later. Um, they would take decks and they would say, it's missing something. Let me add some additional, uh, you know, case studies or social proof or uh, real life examples of something I learned last week working with another customer. So it's taking the time to personalize it, to contextualize it to the customer relationship, those very specific things. Um, and so now I'm a big believer with process and playbooks. It's you kind of build the roundabout and not the intersection, like create enough structure so people know where they have to go to get where they need to be, but let people use their brains and their judgment instead of just like compliance, like red means stop, green means go. That makes sense. This is by far the one of the most interesting conversations around this topic and 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 no offense to, to Nick Mehta of Gainsight, but you know, this this is great knowledge <laughs> dropping. So uh, Nick, if you're listening, thanks. We appreciate it. But I think Megan's coming for your role over there. Um, but what just sort of backing out of this, and this, this is great stuff. What led you just in your career to decide to be a someone in revenue, right? Whether you want to call it sales or account management, like what brought you into that? originally and then what made you sort of go i like this account management customer success side of things so much that i want to follow that path so i'm a very pragmatic and realistic person and i like to be able to you know point to that's what i did here are the outcomes i achieved and so revenue was always interesting to me because like your business will not exist without revenue and without your customers. And if you 
figure out how to deliver a great experience to your customers, take care of your internal team that's supporting your customers, you have a great product or service that the market needs, and you get that approach right, the revenue will come. And so it was always important for me to be on the front lines. I mean, I, I started right out of high school, I was selling Cutco knives for nine, my first nine months out of high school. And so loved the thrill of the sale. <laughs> definitely brainwashed and bought those bag of knives with like all my money at 18. <laughs> so I can, I'm going to derail us for a second. Like how many people have we talked to that started by selling Cutco knives? It's unbelievable. And it's unbelievable. It re and I never heard of it. I mean, I grew up in Macon, Georgia, so maybe yeah. that it was not a thing where I grew up either. Mainly. Right. So, I grew up in Southern California. I mean, the Cutco Club is real. I feel like if I meet someone that got through the Cutco experience beyond three months, I'm like, you're someone that I respect because that was really hard. <laughs> yeah. Go back even further before high school or before Cutco, like, were you competitive by nature? Were you, you know, sort of driven competitively on grades? Because to your point, you said, I like to see the results of my hard work. Yeah. I think probably my best like childhood story that sums up my uh, competitive spirit is my love of Monopoly and how many friendships I lost <laughs> over playing games of Monopoly because <laughs> um, I was too. Be the title of this episode, by the way, that would but, be an excellent episode title. I couldn't lose. I just couldn't lose. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I'm super competitive. I've learned to tone it down. I'd, I'd like to say that um, I was a bad winner and a sore loser. <laughs> I have one of those in my family. Admit this. It's great. For that. I was one of those. those? Yeah. Well, I, I probably am one of those. Megan really? and I are probably very similar, and I think I have spawned two, two others that are the same way. I know when I would win, I'd rub it in everybody's face and like have a party for myself. And then when I would lose, I would come up with every excuse or pretend it never happened. <laughs> I would have a party for myself. I love that. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, we've, we've gotten a little better probably, Megan, than we were. Yeah. I've, I've evolved in my, in my old age. Only in my weakest moments, yeah, does my competitive spirit uh, rear its ugly head. <laughs> um, so wait, what were we talking about before? <laughs> Custer. We were talking about Cutco knives. Do you still know your Cutco pitch? Uh, Just out of curiosity. Uh, well, uh, I still have my super shears and I can cut a penny with scissors and speak about how powerful those scissors will be. And they've lasted, I'm dating myself, for 18 years. <laughs> um, and they still work great. Um, my other best Cutco story, which actually happened while I was selling, my grandmother and I went to a yard sale. We found an old Cutco knife. They have a lifetime guarantee. We spent 25 cents on this Cutco knife at a yard sale, sent it back for the lifetime guarantee, and they sent back a brand new sparkling $90 chef knife um, to make good on that. Never had a company actually do that for me. And so you really can't go wrong because they'll last your whole life. And if you ever return them, they'll send you brand new knives back. Um, now, how, now, now, sponsor. we need a new sponsor. Kaku yeah, and sure. I. We're going to go after Cutco now. Now, Megan, how do you apply this level of customer service to the B2B world that you're in? Can you, can you have this Cutco model somehow or is it too extreme? Um, I think the Cutco model is probably too extreme for I think current B2B, especially from like a customer success account management lens. My philosophy is that 
as a B2B company, it is your responsibility to identify the types of customers that actually will receive meaningful value and results from using your product or service, being really upfront with them about what you can offer, managing their expectations on where things will go wrong, being very radically honest, um, proactive, and going above and beyond to make those connections for them. So for me, it's no bullshit. It's you actually have a problem we can solve. You need to drive a result that we can help you drive. This is how we're going to do it. This is what we're not good at. These are the problems that might come up. When they come up, let us know. We'll handle them in this way. Um, customer relationships are relationships, and relationships are messy. There is no formula that will work foolproof for every single one. And so those are my pillars of my like customer success philosophy that I believe create the right conditions for most customers to be successful. So how do you get the sales team to do that? Because oftentimes it's like sell, sell, sell. Here, hold for customer success where the magic happens. Yeah, so um, I think at Q, I had a great experience there because one of the problems we had was we were, we were selling outside of our ICP. And so we had a ton of churn because we were bringing on customers that just weren't a good fit. So I made a change to the comp plan. I was like, I'm not gonna pay you guys on these types of customers. I'm only gonna pay you on ICP. Here's what that means. Um, if you bring in these other customers, they're not gonna get a CSM and you're not gonna get commission on them. Um, so that was a very specific way that we were able to reduce the number of bad customers coming in the door. The second thing is you need to create a really good relationship between sales and customer success. They need to care about each other. They need to have mutual respect. Um, if possible, if your organization is structured, create small teams, sales rep and an AM pod, for example, or multiple on each side, depending on the business and the volume, um, and have a really like specific handoff process. The sales rep needs to talk to the CSM or the AM, tell them what happened in the sales process. They need to be on the handoff call. If anything goes wrong in the first 30 days, the sales rep is on the hook to come back into the situation to reset expectations. Um, and or if by 30 days we're not in a good place, back to sales. Um, so you have to create the right incentive structure. You have to create trust between the teams and you have to create a process that forces them to do the right thing by the customer. So when you're setting up that agreement, right? Like so often, particularly at startups, right? And, and maybe, maybe you've been lucky, but how do you get the head of sales to agree? Because so often it's, oh, we closed it, our hands are done, right? And how do you get them to agree about that part in the first 30 days? Hmm. Or have you been lucky enough that your team hasn't, you haven't had that experience you've been with leaders who trust you and you trust them and that kind of stuff, which is also amazing. No, I mean, I think um, definitely issues can come up. I think um, one of the things that we'll typically do is, let's say we get to the 30 day mark and we find that there are, um, you know, there are customers that haven't worked out for various reasons. Um, getting the sales team, the success team in the same room to hash out and almost have like a retrospective of, of what happened. And so I think in the biggest issues that I've had with customers, I try to almost have um, like a debrief session where we can unpack, here's a bad situation that happened. Um, why do we think it happened? What were the factors that played into this? If we could do this all over again, how would we do it differently? And then surface and present that to teams to use it as a learning moment. 
um, everyone's going to make mistakes. Like things are not going to work out. You know, even processes that you implement and develop may not be perfect and could cause those issues. And so I'm just a fan of when things go wrong, get the right people in a room, understand all sides of the table of what happened, um, surface the learnings, share with the teams, and like, let's all learn together. That's a general approach that I'll take when things are going wrong. And in some cases, you can sometimes even involve your customer um, to get their direct feedback on what their experience was. And, um, you know, I even had a call this morning with a customer that we're not going to be working with anymore. And she gave me a ton of valuable feedback of the last 12 months of her engagement. And she's not mad at us. Like there's some structural things within their org that are changing and our partnership's coming to an end. But even despite ending on good terms, I got a ton of really good actionable feedback on everything she experienced thus far. So I'm going to surface that to my team here now. We're going to take that with us going forward and act on it to make changes so that things are better in the future. What's your communication cycle like with the other departments? And I'm even thinking from the customer success all the way back to the SDR or BDR side, right? Because I think you guys uncover the real stuff, right? Um, as, as much as product marketing might, you're like, you know, reality marketing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, at my current company, we're small, so it's easy. Um, <laughs> but at, uh, some of my past companies that have been larger, that's definitely been a challenge. And so probably I think at Grubhub, we did it best. We had weekly cross-functional meetings with, uh, sales, with marketing, with success, um, where we would, um, we would ensure that we were, were all aware of everything that we were doing, that we were complementing one another's efforts, um, that if there were issues, we could raise them as a group and discuss them. I think that um, even though we had that right like weekly cadence and we had goal alignment and that was a really strong collaboration at Grubhub, um, I think what was interesting is you would still have conflict because different leaders would disagree and you wouldn't necessarily have a leader that comes in and makes a decision or, or says, okay, everyone said their piece, we're gonna go this way. Um, that was an interesting thing for me when I was at Q and really took over all that functions and the buck did stop with me, where we were in situations where, you know, I actually, I like when people disagree and when they debate topics and, and whatnot. Um, but when I was in charge, I knew that I'm not going to leave it up to them to figure it out on their own. I think a lot of leaders are just like, oh, they're smart people. Let them just figure out an option that works. And I do think that there are times when a leader needs to step in and say, tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. Okay, I'm making a decision and this is the decision. And we all need to decide and commit and move forward. I think it's important to empower your team. So you shouldn't be doing that all the time. But I think sometimes leaders are afraid to make tough decisions and let people work it out on their own. And it usually doesn't work out very well that way. All like the right definition of collaboration, actually, what you just described. <clears throat> Everybody's being heard and everybody has a chance to, to speak their, their mind. And, and at some point though, the leader steps in and says, this is what I think we're going to do. And then everybody executes. Is there, is there differences? I know you've only been there a couple of months, but what are the differences that you think you're going to run into in this 
CS and operations function working for an agency like Refine Labs versus the B2B roles that you've been in prior? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge in my role at Refine Labs is expectation management in the sales process and um, managing the service delivery in a way where we can drive a consistent service experience and results across our customer base. Um, I've always been in, in companies where there's been a combination of tech and people. So like at ZocDoc, you would book your appointment online, but then you'd go to the doctor in real life, right? At Grubhub, you would order your food online, but then food would show up and you would eat it. And if there was a razor blade in your salad, you were upset at Grubhub. <laughs> um, and so now at Refine Labs, you know, the the service is the product. And Our, isn't the service like so specific and unique to each customer as well? It, it you know, Broadly, it's all under demand generation, but yes, because every customer is different and that's going to mean different things to every customer. And we put together a scope of work and, you know, we execute against that scope of work, but there can be a lot of interpretations of what that scope of work means. And so that's why I come back. It's, it really is all about communicating effectively, managing expectations. And then right now, the people on our team are our product, right? The people that work with our customers to implement um, and execute against our campaigns or deliver strategic insights, they're the, the product. And so I need to work with our team to create the right conditions for them to be able to be successful in delivering it, have enough consistency across the different team members while giving them their own space for their personal style, and ultimately ensure that we're delivering on our results to our customers, um, and also making them feel good about it in the process. So I think that that's gonna be my biggest challenge in this role. And let's make sure we understand and acknowledge that we don't know that there were ever razor blades in the food at Grubhub. So I wanna make sure that, you know, <laughs> that Scott and I don't get in trouble, you know, we get some FCC violation. But I guess I guess now we'll have, it'll be an uphill battle to get, to maybe we can get Cutco, but I'm not sure we can get Grubhub to sponsor. So we'll see. But, <laughs> um, that, this is all fantastic. I know we need to sort of start to, to wrap this up. Um, I, I think the, the one last question before we go to our last last question is, what advice do you give to people to want to get into the account management customer success side of the house, right? Sometimes it's SDRs or BDRs. Should you move someone in who's never been in a closing role? Should, do you have to have been an AE? If you failed as an AE, can you be a successful account manager, customer success person? I think that the best account management customer success professionals have really great emotional intelligence, which I like to break down into having high empathy and really strong communication skills. And I believe that if you have those three qualities and regardless of whatever your past positions are, then you can be successful in this type of a role because really all it's about is relationships. And there, yes, that there are, you know, different competencies and skills that you will need to learn or that you have to build, but all of that stuff is teachable. You can argue that maybe you can teach empathy. I'm sure, you can definitely teach improved communication skills, but that, that sort of triad of the high EQ, high empathy, strong communication, um, 
anyone that has those naturally, I think can learn everything else. And um, in my experience, customer success and account management, it's one of the hardest jobs out there. Like if you like have the dating analogy, like as a salesperson, you know, and sales is a tough role too. So I'm not trying to disparage the, the sales team or to say that the job isn't hard. Um, but typically you can follow a certain set of steps and acquire a new customer, but then retaining that customer indefinitely is a whole new ball game. It's just much more complex. There's more shades of gray. Um, you know, you could do everything right and you can still lose your customer. Um, just when you have a long-term relationship, all the rules go out the window. I love that we're just wrapping up this episode with Megan just dropping this controversial-ish statement out there so all the salespeople who are listening can get all riled up. And we're just going to not follow up on it. Everybody out there is going to have to just get riled up and, and end on that, on that note. Megan, what can we do for you? How can we be helpful to you and the things that you're working on uh, or any causes that you're you know, supporting or anything like that? Um, no, I mean, you guys are so awesome and active on, um, you know, in the LinkedIn community and other communities out there. I think I read your stuff all the time. I listen to your other um, Surf and Sales podcast episodes. And I think you guys just keep doing what you're doing. You add so much value to the community every single day. And I'm also trying to follow your lead and, and do the same by sharing from my experience. So um, all I would ask is you guys just keep doing what you're doing because I think everyone really learns a ton and appreciates it. Um, I know Scott, you're, um, you do your Thursday night sales with my good friend, Amy Volas, um, which people love. I need to, I need to show up one day. Um, but yeah, I think you guys, um, you guys do awesome work giving back. And so just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much. We, uh, we appreciate that. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on and like dropping crazy knowledge like this. I feel like this entire episode has a ton of controversy, whether it's compensation, like good controversy, agreements. you know what I mean? It's good though. It's healthy. Like this is the healthy conflict that people yeah. need to think about. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it was great to be here and great to chat with you guys. Hopefully we can do it again one day. Thanks, Megan. And a quick shout out to our sponsors of Gong and Lead411. We appreciate them supporting us and uh, look forward to talking to you guys again soon.